Welcome, everybody, to another episode of React Roundup. I am TJ Van Toll, and joining me today is Robin Picorni, and hopefully I pronounced that last name correctly. So could you just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you do, what makes you famous, that sort of thing? Hi, yeah, thanks for having me here. You said the name very well. So I am a developer based in Berlin, Germany. Originally, I'm from the Czech Republic, which is a neighborhood country. By the way, these are the two countries with the highest beer consumption in the world. <laughs> Coincidence, I guess. And I've been interested in functional programming, especially writing functional code using TypeScript, because TypeScript is now the lingua franca of JavaScript development, in a way. And I really like the functional programming ways of programming. And TypeScript isn't like, you know, by default, it doesn't support it as well. So you have to help it a bit. And that's what I've been investigating the past few months or, or years. If you're a front-end developer looking for remote work, then I recommend G2i, a React and React Native-focused hiring platform that will connect you directly with their clients that need your skill set. What makes G2i a unique hiring experience is that they spend the time marketing you to their clients of your choice. G2i is a team of engineers that technically vets you up front. If you pass their vetting, their clients have agreed to skip their initial interview process, saving you time and energy getting your next gig. They take care of all the hard work for you so you can get focused on development. To join G2i, go to g2i.co and apply. I definitely want to dive into functional programming with TypeScript, but maybe you could start by just sort of for, for any listener that's really unfamiliar with the concept, just lay out like functional programming, you know, 101, what is it, why you would do it, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a difficult one. No, I mean, in, in a way, okay, let me, let me start. Like we have different paradigms in programming and most people are probably familiar with, with object-oriented programming or with procedural programming. And there is actually a third one, which is technically the oldest, and it's called functional programming, which takes function as the core of its operation. And everything is a function. And you compose functions, you create functions, you pass functions as, as arguments. So that is like a very core of the programming that is connected with another property that is being pure. In functional programming, you usually have a, com a concept of pure functions, meaning that uh, they always return the same result when they are called. Imagine, for example, function random, which always returns a different value. Or maybe you have a function that mutates an array, right? Uh, they, that always changes things. They have side effects. In functional programming, we don't change things. We create new ones. It's called immutable structures. That means you don't change them. You create a new one based on the previous one. And so correct me, so just as everybody is aware, my knowledge of functional programming is like very, very small, right? I, I know sort of the high-level concepts, but I'm, I'm definitely no uh, expert here. So correct me if I'm wrong, but JavaScript is not like a functional programming language per se, but it supports, because I know like the whole functions are first-class citizen in JavaScript. I, am I characterizing that mostly correctly? Mm, yes, uh, I mean, that's true. Like uh, there are languages which are purely functional, like to name a few, it's like Haskell or, or Clojure. These are only functional and it's impossible to write in another way. With JavaScript, we usually talk about it as a multi-paradigm language, meaning, well, meaning it supports all and none in a way. So yes, you said, because it supports uh, functions as, as first-class citizens and, and you can write pure functions in JavaScript, there's nothing stopping you from treating JavaScript as a functional language. But also, JavaScript supports objects. It has like 
it's not object oriented because I mean it doesn't have the like Java doesn't have classes; it has uh, prototypal inheritance. But you can combine these approaches, and that's where this where JavaScript is very powerful. So first, JavaScript is the most used language in the world, and you can combine approaches. Yeah, it makes sense because I know that, and we were chatting about this somewhat before that. When it comes to functional programming, I feel like there are some people that like sort of casually talk about the benefits. And then there's a group of people that are like super, totally hardcore into it. Like functional programming is all they do. They hand out pamphlets at conferences. Like they, they really go all in on this. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Do you, totally, like, you have that experience as well? Is that not just me? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm not a hardcore programmer or functional programmer. I know these people and it's, it's nice in a way. And I, I kind of admire them because this world of functional programming is, I think the pure is not just the concept in the functional programming, but it's also how it, it feels when you write something which is purely functional. It feels like this pristine and pure and it's like very clean. <laughs> and I understand that it's, it's, uh, it feels very good to achieve that. I myself have a background in mathematics. And uh, by the way, my, my advisor for the thesis was one of the best in category theory. And functional programming is very closely related to category theory. I, I really wish I, I at least had a class on that because it would help me with functional programming. <laughs> but in a way, functional programming can be very mathematical in the way that people want to be precise and they want to prove things and, and they, want, they want to have one way of like, proving things. So it can feel overwhelming. And truly is. I mean, there are so many concepts in there. There are so many new worlds, uh, words, like, I mean, monads and, and, and functors and all of these. And, and they just sound so weird to people who are not used to them. And I was one of them uh, just a just few years ago. Yeah. And so before we get into like the, the specifics here, I'd be curious, like, what have you seen? Like, what are some of the benefits of taking this approach? Like, to someone that hasn't used any of this stuff before, I'd be curious what sort of things would... You, why you would encourage someone to sort of take the plunge and learn some of these concepts and this approach? Mm-hmm. Because like you said, it is it is really a different paradigm. So there is going to be some work to get up to speed with this sort of mm-hmm. thing. I would say there are many reasons. Well, one I would pick up is we are on a React Roundup podcast. So I assume most of the people who listen to us know React. And actually React and many things that Facebook has been creating come from a functional approach or like a functional background. So React itself is, I mean, I don't know the exact uh, name for it, but but it, it builds on functional principles. The same is true for, for example, Redux, like one of the most used uh, state machines, uh, sorry, state state libraries. And that's, that's actually just a simple, like a reducer in a way, which, which comes from functional programming. It's like, it's it's very cool. Like in a way, Redux is just. I think I saw him implemented in twenty nine lines as, as some blog post. Like it's very simple, but it's very powerful. And I feel that's the true things for most of the functional programming ways. It's about reusability. It's about creating functions that are small. They do one thing and they do it when, and then you compose them in a way, and you understand each of the pieces, and you understand the whole thing as well. That being said, it can get complicated, especially when you introduce these new uh, terms and and you are unfamiliar with them. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I do feel like React has a lot of, like you said, like use reducer uh, sort of thing. I think most React developers be familiar with what that is, or even just the act of React makes pretty heavy use of just passing around functions and uh, chaining Mm -hmm. functions. And even just that sort of thing is sort of functional in nature as well. 
Actually, I mean, the, the, this one term I know. So uh, hooks, uh, which many people had problems with or like they were surprised they were introduced. This is something called algebraic effects in functional programming. So nice. I'm just saying that there is a whole world around this. And especially the Haskell community is very strict about it. And many, many of these ideas come from Haskell either directly or indirectly. So if you want to sound cool at your office, just just... But just go into your code base and say like, oh, I see the use of your algebraic effects there. Like, oh, that's right. You call them hooks still. That's, that's yeah, yeah. Not very uh, I fancy. Mean, <laughs> you, can, you can go so much deeper. There's this like book, uh, which is targeted to programmers and they, it explains category theory. And then you can come and then you can throw these functors and, and semi-monoids and whatever all around. I, I don't understand that, honestly, sometimes. Like I, I, I do some of those right now, but I get lost in them so easily. Gotcha. So another question I have then too is you have some expertise here with TypeScript and I'm curious how, like, where does TypeScript sort of fit into this? How does functional code in like TypeScript different from JavaScript? I'm sort of curious how that fits in. I would start a little bit uh, broader because TypeScript is in my uh, first choice for writing applications in, in, let's say, JavaScript. What I mean by that, that back in the days, well, just a few years back, I started with Elm, and Elm is, uh, again, functional language. It is, I would say, hugely inspired by Haskell, but it's purely for front-end. It's, it's only for web applications. And, and Evan Chaplitsky, who, who created the language, I think the language is really nice because it gives you these rails, and it's difficult to do something wrong. It, it has the best uh, error messages I've seen, meaning like compiler error messages. And it's just like pure in the sense I was talking. Like It feels very nice to build something in that. And I was a big fan of Elm for a long time. And I kind of like it. I still think it's, it's a really good language. However, I've, I kind of stopped believing it will make the, the jump. It will not become mainstream. For a while, I was organizing Elm meetup in Berlin. And there was a nice community of people. And it was interesting ideas. And I think I became better React developer because of Elm. But I just kind of lost faith that it will make it in a way. And I moved to another language, <laughs> which was uh, ReasonML. And I thought because it's backed by Facebook and, and all of that stuff, I thought that, that that's the thing that will make it. And I think that you spoke with Patrick a uh, few episodes back, and he's a nice guy from Vienna. So if you want to know more about uh, ReasonML, listen to that episode. But I think the same thing happened. And I was just like, okay, it's not going to make it. So I just do JavaScript. And then I went with Flow, Flow type for type checking, which again, from Facebook. And I would say it's, it has it's it's more functional than uh, TypeScript because TypeScript is designed by the same person who created uh, C Sharp, and Microsoft's been great at classic objective object oriented languages. So you can still see that this inspiration. So I, I, it wasn't my first choice, but then everything else kind of died. Like <laughs> TypeScript one, like it it now occupies it. It's like as I said, it's it's the it's the most used language. So what I'm trying to do now is to find a way how to use this most used language in a way I like it. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I definitely, it, it's funny too, that I guess, would you still, like if you could have your way and if it was, let's say Elm was just natively in the browser, you'd prefer to write code that way? Oh, JavaScript's yeah. sort of like the, I, I think it's not uncommon because so many people come to JavaScript because it's it's everywhere. So yeah. I mean, at a certain point, if you, want a job, if you want to just write apps that people are actually going to use, it sort of becomes a, a necessary evil or whatever the case may be. It's 
just where you happen to end up out of necessity. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I really like Elm. I think it's a well-designed language. And I think the problem is that like, maybe it will make it, like there's still chance, but maybe it's too different uh, for most people. So now, by the way, I work at Klarna, which is a Swedish company. And the core of Klarna was written in Erlang because, you know, Ericsson created Erlang and stuff like that. But what I didn't know before I joined is that their original versions of Frontend were written in Elm because functional programming is strong at Klarna. But they had to stop that because they couldn't find people. Like it, it, it became like a real problem to find people who can run Elm at this scale. And of course, you can, I mean, for example, Richard Feldman, who, by the way, recently published a book about Elm, says that it's easy to bring people to Elm. And I agree with that. But if you would like to grow and you would like to double or triple number of developers you have in a year, it's, it's just unscalable. You cannot find the people, you cannot find the coaches. So, but yeah, I would love to have uh, Elm. Yeah, no, I can sympathize with that too because I've done years of Java development. I, I've written PHP code. I've written, like, I've, I've probably somewhat passable in four or five different languages. None of those languages are Erlang. None of those languages are Elm, right? And I would never apply for a job that mentioned one of those things because it just, it's the sort of thing that feels, for the same reason that, that even functional programming in JavaScript feels like a bit overwhelming going to a completely other language that embraces that fully, just in my head, at least. I know like, yeah, if I dedicated myself, I'm sure it's not that bad. But in my head, it seems like such a huge task. <laughs> it's true. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's twofold. And when I was looking for a new job, I actually searched for companies uh, writing in Elm. Like that was like one of the first things I put in the search bar in, in, in that like job advertising. And it would have been a great uh, competitive advantage if they used this language I liked. And on a similar note, I think that if you get people who, who know this language, you, they come with a certain mindset, which I think is beneficial. With JavaScript, like, there are so many variants of JavaScript, and people come from so many backgrounds. And, and I mean, not backgrounds, like, uh, but I mean programming backgrounds, like how they write, how they like to work. But usually with Elm, these people are, I would say, curious by default. And uh, yeah, they, they share many of, the, maybe, maybe many of the ideas you would have. So that's also beneficial if you can get them. Yeah, and there's, there's some React sort of parallels here because one of the things that I've, I've written both Angular code and React code, and I have you know, things I like and dislike about both, but one of the things that I liked about Angular is it enforced a certain amount of consistency. So you could jump into an Angular app and know sort of how things worked and how things functioned and how things were structured. And React, like one of the benefits is you can kind of do anything, you can do whatever you want in a lot of cases. Like there's not a whole lot of hard and fast rules, but the, which is, there's obvious benefits to that. But the downside is that you can get stuck on these, which tool should I use for this? Which which router am I going to use? Which CSS implementation am I going to use? And it can make a big uh, hassle, a source of, you know, time sync, that sort of thing. Learning curve for bringing in new people. They might not know some React library you're using, that sort of thing as well. So I can see the benefits of, even at the language level, having a certain consistency built into things. Yep. So with that background aside, TypeScript, and I'm, I'm going to take a guess here because I know I also have mixed feelings about TypeScript and I like a lot of what it does. But one thing I fight against is sometimes the type system becomes more cumbersome than useful. Like there's certain times where like, it's like, I know what I'm doing, but then I have to do some work to tell the compiler what I'm doing. And I'm going to take a guess. You can tell me if I'm wrong, 
wrong, that that's actually going to be one of the, the tricky things of dealing with functional programming in TypeScript as well? Um, that's, that's interesting. I, I don't think so. Uh, not necessarily. I think that in a way it can make things easier hmm. uh, because I think it's stricter. Like it doesn't allow you that many things and therefore it makes it easier for the compiler to infer types and you don't have to type that many things. However, and that's true, uh, once you hit something, it, it can be very difficult to debug that. So debug that. So yes and no. Okay. So what sort of, I know you have some libraries and such you've worked with here. I guess like, what are, like, if you're giving developers sort of steps of, you're doing TypeScript, you want to do functional programming, where do you recommend people? Like, mm -hmm. where do you go? What do you do? That sort of thing. I think in a way you can, you don't have, you don't need anything. You can use just uh, the JavaScript or like, you know, the JavaScript in TypeScript, like the, the built-in things, because for example, when you use some array methods like filter, map, reduce, these are like very typical fun uh, functional patterns. So you can do many of these things just with pure JavaScript. And I, I very often do that. And yeah, you can do that like this. However, especially people who know other uh, functional languages, like I mean, the Elm or, or Haskell, these languages have built-in structures that make it much easier to work with code. And here I'm talking, for example, about option, sometimes called maybe type, meaning it either has some value or it doesn't have a value. So instead of using, for example, null to represent missing value, you have a very specific value saying there is nothing here or there is something. And then you can do only transformations when there is something. So for example, there is maybe a number and then you want to double it, you only double it if it's there. If it's not there, you still keep the nothing, let's say. Gotcha. I'm just trying to picture that in my head. So is it like an actual, like in the case you were using TypeScript, would it actually be a TypeScript type? Would you describe, just declare yes, something yes. as a maybe, essentially? I mean, maybe you can imagine it like, and that's how you can even, that's how it's implemented, is that it's an object which has one special property. Let's call it like, I think it's called tag. And that is either string none or string sum. And if it has string sum, it also has another property called value where you have the value. And then you have a, a set of utilities that know this type exists and was the shape. Uh, for example, the method I was talking about is called map. So if there is something, meaning check what is the uh, tag, if it's sum, apply the transformation. If not, don't, don't apply it. Gotcha. So basically, it's in a sense, you're cleaning up your code a little bit because... I've probably wrote in thousands of if if this exists. And then even those if those exist checks are kind of hairy because because JavaScript does null, undefined, yeah. like truthy values gets it gets hairy. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's where we get to the core why you should use uh, functional programming. And I mean, especially with this library I'm talking about, it's called FPTS, like functional programming typescript by Giulio Canti. He's like, a, I think, Italian programmer, and he builds this a set of libraries. It's a family of libraries, and I think we can link them. And it's really, really interesting. And they implement so many of these helper methods. I mean, I was talking about the option, but it has, I don't know, like 30 or 40 of them. I, I'm not using all of them. What I think is, the, like, where is the core of this? Is that you think about errors in a different way. Because I grew up in thinking errors are something bad. Like for me, errors meant mistakes. And if my code produces errors, I made a mistake as a programmer. And it took me some time to realize that's not the case. Like errors 
are part of the code. Like some things are meant to fail, meaning if you have a validation, that's the most common example, like you want it to fail, like in certain cases. It should, it's, it's, it's expected output. And functional programming, if you treat it well, treats errors as data. It, it makes you treat them like as a normal case and you, you, it makes you deal with that. Meaning you cannot ignore it. You cannot like bubble it to the top and have the error shown. No, you have to deal with it. Like if you have something that can fail, you need to say what's going to happen. For example, with the validation, you have to define a function what happens when it's successful and what happens when it's not. Gotcha. Yeah, no, no I'm very much, and I don't even think like that air handling thing, it's, it's broader than just JavaScript too, because I, I have nightmares from my Java days of air handling in Java where when you... Because air handling in strictly typed languages is absolute horror because you have to, the, there's the bubbling you describe and it's it's just a nightmare. And so lots of times people, developers just won't do it because it's it's such a hassle and it's something that is quote unquote not supposed to happen, right? Airs, exactly. airs aren't supposed to happen. So, And if you look at TypeScript, like I think it's even impossible to type a function that is expected to throw errors. Like you can type the return type but I don't think that there's a way you can define uh, errors it will throw. Like if it can throw, I don't know, type error or anything. Like that's not, the TypeScript doesn't have a way to do that. I mean, maybe you can do some workaround, but by default, it doesn't think about that. Yeah, because TypeScript almost is designed to keep you from doing that, right? Like that's sort of the point. You're not supposed to get errors. You're using TypeScript. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is dangerous uh, because if you believe TypeScript too much, it can bite you. Like TypeScript isn't that safe. Like, and that's one of my biggest reservations uh, against uh, or to TypeScript is that there are, it's very easy to break it. Like uh, one of the easiest things is you declare an array of, let's say, strings and you access a variable or like a, a, an element there and it thinks it's a string. But what if, it, what if it's not there? What if, what if you access, uh, I don't know, thousandth element and it only has five, right? You get undefined, but you don't know about it. TypeScript doesn't tell you. So, so uh, again, like uh, in FP, we have ways how you can access it. And then every time you access an element in an array, it says maybe it's undefined and you have to deal with the case when it's undefined, which I've, I understand can feel a little bit like too much work and people want to focus on, like they say, oh yeah, I know it's going to be there. But then you either have to type it in a way that you know it's there and the type system knows it as well, or you have to deal with the possibility it's not there. Hey folks, are you trying to figure out how to stay current with React Native? Maybe you heard the Chain React conference was canceled and you're a little bit sad about that. Well, I borrowed their dates and I'm doing an online conference. So if you want to come and learn from the best of the best from React Native, then come do it. We have people like Christopher Shadow from Facebook. He's going to come and he's going to talk to us and answer questions about the origins of React Native. We're also going to have Gant Laborde from Infinite Red and several of the panelists and past panelists from React Native Radio. So come check it out at reactnativeremoteconf.com. So when you say you have to define like sort of the air case, is it like a TypeScript compiler thing is going to force you to implement like a property? Like what is that? Just to help me paint a picture, what does it look like in actual syntax? Um, is there like okay, an air uh, property you have to define with a function or something yeah, like that? I think, I think let's use uh, pro, uh, promises as an example because many people know it. And when you define, when you have a promise, it can be in eventually in two states. It's either fulfilled or rejected. And I think it's very common for people not to care about the rejected state, and they only focus on the uh, fulfilled. 
And Who imagine that, that <laughs> and, and another thing is that you have the, the then method, and it has actually two arguments. The first argument is when it's fulfilled, and the, other argu- uh, the second argument is when it's rejected, which many people don't implement. So imagine that both of these were required to be implemented by the, so the t- TypeScript would force you to implement both of those functions. That kind of, that, that's what I'm talking about. You have to take care about the failing case. Gotcha. And so that's the sort of thing that like, and when you say forced to, TypeScript itself won't do that. That's more where like the FPTS comes in, right? Because like the uh, certain typing that comes in that's going to force you to adhere to those sorts of things. Yeah. And I mean, again, for, forced means you will get a compiler error. So, I mean, you can still, I guess, ignore it or whatever, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's on your uh, behalf. Yes. By default, for example, the promise I talked about, they don't have this condition. So you can introduce new structures, which will be like uh, promise, or they will do different things, which will have these kind of restrictions. And then you will have these utilities type in a way that, again, point you in the right direction. So if I were interested in in the FPTS, if I wanted to sort of dive into this, what would you recommend sort of as like a a logical path forward, right? Because to be honest, I've I looked over a bit before this the documentation, and uh, my brain melted just a little yeah. bit uh, because I know I know that, there is a lot there. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's it's bad. Like I mean, okay, <laughs> so this is exactly the case when I think it's hardcore. Like it has all the information you probably need, but it's not in a format you can understand unless you you know things. So I totally understand that people who are very deep into that, and for example, Julio Canti, the creator, can look at it and they know what there is. For me, I still have, I, when I go to the documentation and I, I try to avoid that, it takes me so much time to actually understand what things means because uh, that is my favorite example. Like you can have a structure called apply and then it has like a paragraph, like I don't know, like let's say seven sentences, which don't give me much information. And the last one says apply represents a strong lex semi modoidal endo functor. And, and, and I would stop reading like immediately. Yeah, so, I, I mean, <laughs> Duh, every, every yeah, that, right. <laughs> so, and, and, and my first reaction would be, I'm not smart enough to, to understand this. So, the first thing you you should not do, you should not look at documentation for for some time. <laughs> I think uh, the best way to learn FPTS is through examples. There is a let's say nice, but also a little bit hardcore series on Dev uh, two uh, by Julia Kante about FPTS, which is okay, but if you have a functional background, it will give you a good interaction. If you don't have that, I think it's very difficult. And I, I mean, I, I've struggled with that. And it took me a lot of experimenting because I was dedicated to learn that. But I think as of now, there is no good introduction to that. And I mean, in a way, I would like to change that. I, I would like to talk about your conferences and show the benefits. And I think we are waiting for someone to write a tutorial or, or maybe even ebook that will really explain it to people who don't want to write functional programming, but what they want to get the benefits. So I'm curious then, maybe if we even take a step back, because it sounds like you came to functional programming in, or well, if you, you came to FPTS because you really liked functional programming and you were trying to bring those things into a TypeScript world, but you already had the background. So I'm curious, what, what sort of brought you, like if we take a step back, what brought you into the functional programming camp sort of in the the first place back in the day, like even back when you went into to Elm and such, what, what sold you on, on the technique? Yeah, that, that's a very easy answer to that. And it's very fitting because it, it was React, in fact. 
So uh, interesting. A lo- yeah, a long time ago, I was working with Angular One, and I, to be honest, it, I like that because I'm not sure it's known, but there are many. Like in the original Angular team, there were people from from I think Slovakia, and you know, I'm from Russian Republic, and. I was fortunate enough that one of my colleagues was a friend with one of those core creators of Angular. So in our company, we tried Angular before, let's say, it was big. I mean, <laughs> and, and that actually was, for me, the first time I came into uh, JavaScript world as well, because before that, which is also interesting, I was focused on CSS. Uh, and when I say focus, I mean, like, my, my goal was to become a, a CSS uh, working group member uh, in W3C. That, that didn't happen. But I mean... I think it gave me this thing when I can focus on things. So I didn't do all the languages. I didn't do PHP and Java and uh, JavaScript and I don't know what else. I kind of focused on that. And I, I think it was a good decision for me. And then I was in this company and they were writing with this cool new framework called Angular. And I came in there and I, I learned my JavaScript there. And then React came and it totally rocked my world. Like I was so surprised. I was coming to these meetups in Prague and there were people talking about that. And I, I, I liked that. And I immediately, I'm not even sure what, how it happened, but I was immediately told that React is based on functional principles. And I started to be interested in them. And that's how I came to functional programming. And what were your next steps from there? Like what, and what I'm getting at is I'm curious, like what sort of learning material? So if someone wants to just get involved more with functional programming, language agnostic or maybe even something web-centric, what sort of resources, guides, tutorials, videos, uh, what would you recommend that's out there? I think for a person who knows React, I would say it's really good to start, for example, looking at uh, Redux and see how it internally works and why there are like constraints that they are there. Maybe try to re-implement that. I, I think that, that gives you the very gist of why things work like that. And then I, we talked about it. I, I really like Elm. I think that Elm uh, is very friendly to beginners. And I know I said it's not maybe not going to make it in a big world, but I still think it's it's really awesome language to play with and to learn from. And yeah, so in a way, I would say it's very, very good to start with Elm. And they, they can shield you from this hardcore functional programming stuff. They can really focus on what is important. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm curious. I think you mentioned this before, but this is this is just a random question, but... Who are the people behind Elm? I'm just sort of curious where the where the language came from because I'm totally naive here. Yeah, so Elm was developed as a it's, it's Evan Chaplitsky created his dissertation, I think, or, or master thesis, one of those at the university in I think Budapest, and it was about functional reactive programming. He created this language, and I know that there's a company I think it's called No Red Ink. We, where now Evan works and it has like this group of people who work there. But of course, like the community is now everywhere. And I think for many Haskell people, this is like the best way to get into front end. So also many people from Haskell came there. Are there any sort of like, especially for these functional languages, are there like certain niche types of like, what types of apps are the best to build with these? Or is it, are they just general purpose enough that you can build anything? Are there certain use cases that work better than others? Yeah, I think I think most people will not like to hear this, I guess. But <laughs> I would say business critical systems are are really suited for functional programming. And I think that's because I talk about the strictness and purity, which is both there. And I think it's very when you have a functional code, it's I mean, people say it's easy to reason about it. Meaning 
you can get into it and you can follow what is happening and where transformations happen. And because you are, as I said, sometimes forced to acknowledge the errors, it's, it's, it's uh, error-prone, right? Uh, it's not error-prone, whatever. Uh, it's, it, you can get less errors, right? Yeah, and it's interesting too. I've just been sort of perusing around like the websites and uh, a lot of these languages, like, like I looked over Elm's site and I'm, I just brought up Erlang's as well. They they talk about this. One of their leading features is just performance, right? Yeah. Like uh, speed. And, 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 and this, is, this is a nice uh, arg because when you look at Elm, one of the biggest advantages they talk about is that you can get zero runtime exceptions on production. Like the company that, that uses Elm, the Robert Inc., I think that um, Richard Feldman is just like, I would say, evangelist for Elm. I think he said that they had one uh, runtime exception and it was, a, it was a mistake in the Elm compiler. But other than that, there's zero. Like no undefined is another function. And why I say it's a nice R, because now we can back, go back to the uh, FPTS. And one of the things I talked about at React Day Berlin, which is called IOTS, it's one of the family of the, fun, uh, the libraries, which is about runtime types. So hold on, explain this to me a little simpler. Uh, so <laughs> IO, IOTS, where does this, there's enough acronyms uh, floating around. Yeah. So, so IOTS yeah. is what exactly again? It's input-output in okay. TypeScript. So I think that there are, I'm not sure how many, but there are many of these libraries. I think that the FPTS is a core and built on top of this are some other libraries. And IOTS, I think is very interesting. And maybe maybe when we talked about in, uh, starting, I would say IOTS is maybe the best one to start with this FPTS world. So what IOTS is. So in functional programming, you have the, this pure internal state. Like your code inside is known, you have all the types, you know what is happening. And then you have the ugly world around. Like it can be the user inputting something, it can be accepting API requests or whatever. Like something comes from somewhere and you cannot be sure what it is. And that's why you have this input-output layer, which let's say validates it. It makes it that it's pure in the in the internals and it, it makes sure that everything is as, as it should be. And so for runtime errors, you're basically saying like, uh, once the code, like you pass all your compiler checks and then something can go wrong, right? And I, I think what fascinates me is I remember that back in the day, the I remember the rise of like JavaScript error checkers, or I should say like error loggers, like these, like, um, and I think there's whole services around this now where basically you add this to your web page and it like collects any like uncaught JavaScript errors and like reports them, logs them somewhere in a list. And I remember a company I was working at, this was probably like, I don't know, uh, almost 10 years ago now, but we decided like, oh, let's just turn one of these on in production and just see what happens. And like, you see the like absolute gargantuan mess of errors that JavaScript spits out that like, even like some of these were like, where in the world are these things even coming from? It's because like, just the the loose nature of JavaScript means that like so many things slips through, they just slip through the cracks when you don't even know how they're doing it. Um, yeah, that's that's exactly it. And, and in a way, TypeScript doesn't help totally. So maybe we can look into that. So TypeScript is a static type checker. What it means is that you have your source code and you can run some checks on this source code. But once you compile this source code to the production JavaScript, all of the type definitions are lost. Like, like it's like in the end, it's JavaScript. It has no types. You don't know things. And it was a conscious decision by the TypeScript team not to build runtime uh, checks of any kind. So 
because it would be almost impossible. What it means, for example, you define a function that receives, I don't know, name, which is a string, but it can be called by, by, the, by anything in the JavaScript world. And if you would like to make sure it's a string, every function that accepts string would have to have like a check, like, I don't know, if type of name is string. And, and this can be very complicated for some uh, complicated structure. So you would have to do it for each and every function, even though it was probably already called by another. So it, it's very difficult to do that. And I mean, for, for dynamic language like JavaScript, it's, it's almost impossible. What you can do, and that's when IOTS, come, uh, IOTS comes in, is you can define a way that you know what is coming in a, in a runtime. And I mean, let me go through it because a good example is an email address. Imagine you would like to have a function that receives an email because you, I don't know, you, you parse it or whatever, but you don't want to check the format of it. You kind of want to know it's an email. What IOTS does is that it helps you define this type saying it's, it's uh, email, but the only way how to produce a value of this type is that it has to go through validation. So what you kind of get is that if you say, I want this uh, function receives email, you know it has at least once passed validation. And uh, that's what you can do in static time. You can say, okay, has this ever went through function of validate? And if yes, you, you know it's going to be an, an email. So that's that's what in very, very broad terms, IOTS does. So off the top of my head, I could see one complaint being that your code gets more verbose or like clunky. Is, is that going to be the case or? I don't think so. I think, so I have here one book. It's called uh, Domain Modeling Made Functional. And I really like this book because DDD, uh, Domain Driven Design, is, I would say, very nice approach. And again, the gist of that is you first define entities you work with. And then you say, can you define how these interact? And you can use types to capture these entities. And with IOTS, I think you can easily capture these, let's call it business types, like email or even unique email or things like that. And then you know how your function exists in your domain, like what it does. Because if you have a function that receives user string, it's not very clear, like string, what does it mean? But if you know it's like, let's say, activated user, you already know so much about the flow and everything. And with uh, IOTS, you can define these, uh, they're called branded types, uh, which is like specially defined, validated values. Just in terms of like the verbosity of the code, is it more verbose compared to like if you were doing this in pure like Elm or Erlang? Like is, do you have to fight against like, I'm, I'm sort of curious because like, so in my head I'm thinking, so TypeScript, all of this is based around types, but like Elm and Erlang, like, are there, is like, there a similar typing sort of structure? Is TypeScript, like, I'm asking you to someone, like, totally naive to the, like, the, the raw functional yeah. world. Yeah, to, to be honest, I, I don't know. I think that the type systems are, are different. They were also designed with a different purpose. And maybe, I, I mean, in a way, of course, the FPTS is going to be a little bit more cumbersome because it's not native to TypeScript or JavaScript. So, on the other hand, they are pure TypeScript. What I, what I mean by that is that I could create a, a separate implementation of the compiler of TypeScript, which supports this. But then it would create this really weird, like, I mean, you know, it's like splitting, like forking the TypeScript, and you don't want to do that. So what I really like is that FPTS is just TypeScript. Like, you can write it yourself if you know how to do that, but it gives you the utilities and the patterns how to work with stuff. So it's pure TypeScript. There's no magic extra. And in a way, you could have written it yourself. So 
it's it's beautiful in a sense. And yes, because it's added, it can add some, some more uh, verbosity. Gotcha. So then, so just take a step back because I I want to kind of like summarize th- things for our listeners, right? Like depending on where they're coming from, specific steps. So. I'll lay out like the, the the notes I've taken so far and you can then just add on anything you've got. So I think your recommendations from before were, I'm sort of, if I'm like a web developer that's sort of casually interested in this, I think your first recommendation was getting familiar with React and certain things from the React world, like Redux that are more functional in nature. You recommended playing with languages like Elm, just sort of experimenting, seeing what you think, that sort of thing. And then I guess from there, would you say like if you're into TypeScript, would FPTS be the place to like start? You said like learning by example, diving into that and seeing like how you could take some of those concepts from TypeScript. Is, is that a good summation? Is there anything else you, you'd sort of add to that? Any other recommendations? Uh, I do have one recommendation. I mean, so I agree with that. I think that's good. And maybe what I wanted to talk about is a use case for FPTS and IOTS, me and my friend did. And I think maybe it could be a good start exploring because it's it's for React. We kind of created a hook. It's called useform. And what you can do is that to this hook, you basically pass, I think, yeah, two things. One is we call it the codec, which means like the type created in IOTS, where you say, for example, there should be an email which should be like type email. There should be a name, which is non-empty string of maximum 50 characters. And, and, and this is like, well, this is, creates this business logic. This like, you know what it is. The second argument is, I think is the initial state. And then you can create a form which can get validated. And what is be- beautiful about this is it's all typed. So for example, when I receive errors, I know what kind of errors can be there. Like I know what, what fields are there. But because we are, you know, we want to internationalize things, if you would like to translate these errors, you need to provide a mapping of all the types, right? Like, I mean, not email, you need to write some message saying this is not a valid email. And because TypeScript understands the whole structure, it knows if you haven't translated something. And when I first saw it, it was a little bit mind-blowing because... For example, you forgot, like you say email, but email has to be uh, non, like unempty, not unempty. And so you have to have two things, like uh, it's not, it shouldn't be empty and it should be an email and you have to provide these translations. Plus, and then, I mean, that's where it comes very handy, is that these are client errors. So on client, you can check that email is not a valid email, let's say, but how can you make sure you don't have it already in your database? Like if it's a sign-up form, how do you know this user doesn't already exist? You can't know that on front end. But on front end, you can prepare for it and you can say it should be a unique email. You write how you define it. And then where the backend returns their errors, you kind of know, like, again, it's preparing for this. You have the translation for this, this scenario. And I mean, maybe it sounds a little bit complicated, but I think in the, in the essence, it's again, I know what's going to happen and I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's sort of a paradigm shift because I think very few people would think to call that like unique email, right? You just write email, it's a string um, and get on get on with your day, but you wouldn't prepare for the eventuality that accounting for that state coming from the back end sort of thing. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, like it's TypeScript, meaning it's uh, full stack. I can use maybe even the same types on front end and back end. And I can use, uh, I mean, I, that's what I use it for in my work is to, guard the backend APIs so the bodies have the correct correct shape. But you can use it on the front end as well. And 
and you can share these types. And uh, in a, uh, and a, I'm coming back to the DDD. These types are your business types. Like that's your domain. They they exist there, so they should exist in both front end and and back end. Gotcha. Is this an example that's online, like that some other people can look yes. into? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, we can post the link there. We have the example there on okay. uh, Codes and Books. We'll make sure that gets into the show notes. Uh, and then at this point, is there anything else that you want listeners to know about? Any other topics that we haven't covered that you'd like to to jump into before we wrap up? <laughs> yeah, one thing. And it's like not to be afraid of functional programming. And I know I was, and I still a bit am. What maybe would help me was this talk I heard somewhere when this, this presenter talks about like all the different terms. I was talking about the functional programming, like Monad and functors, and then said, yeah, but it's only, you don't know them. You weren't exposed to them. That's why they feel so, so weird. But if you look at, for example, objective-oriented programming, and you have inheritance, and you have singleton, all of these terms also sound scary, but they are not scary to you because you've been exposed to them and you know them. So my last message would be not to be afraid, not to get discouraged by these terms, not to get discouraged by people who are hardcore. And I think that the functional programming has a lot of offer, and you can like get only the, the important parts. It's a good note to end on. And I feel like you're almost looking at me right in the face because I'm definitely the somebody that's totally guilty of that, right? That's just letting the the the, the, the complexity that I seem, that I think that it has to sort of intimidate me from diving in a little bit deeper. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine, and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. So on that note, we why don't we jump into the picks? Are you familiar with the concept of picks before? Do you have a few? I am, I am, yeah. All right, why don't you go ahead and start us off? What picks do you have for us today? Oh, I have this very special thing uh, I discovered a month ago, maybe even less, during my time, you know, in like being uh, home, not going to work. And I get, I think I'm more um, tired after work now. So I need something to relax. And I discovered this YouTube channel. It's called Cracking the Cryptic. And it's two guys who are like uh, Sudoku champions. They solve Sudokus. <laughs> and I mean, they, they, they solve really difficult Sudokus with some extra uh, rules. And then these videos can be easily 30, 40 minutes. And it's just mesmerizing for me to watch someone logically, you know, put another number in the, in the grid. And I feel, I feel like it's like, it's like a relax, but also... I still have to think about that. You know, it's not like, it's not just a passive. So I would recommend you, and they do one video every day or actually two videos every day. You have to check this out. My wife is is crazy good at Sudoku. So I think she'd really appreciate this as well because like we sit down and do them and she just like can blitz through them and not me. So it's interesting. Any other picks? Well, I mean, the books I talked about, but that's it. Gotcha. Uh, so I, I have one pick today that is I've picked up an Oculus Quest, sort of another like 
you know, it's quarantine. So what are you going to do? So why not pick up some VR goggles? And I've always been like a VR sort of naysayer sort of deal. Like I didn't quite totally understand the hype, but I'm now like totally bought in because <laughs> it's surprisingly how much just putting on the glasses and going through the tutorial can really suck you in to the world. And you sort of completely lose, um, lose your surroundings, lose a sense of where you're at. Uh, so I've, I've been going through and doing that. And another thing, another pick I'll have is Altspace VR, which is a platform for basically holding online meetings and gatherings in a VR world. And it's something, so I, I work for a company called Progress and we do events. And so we're exploring the idea of like, maybe we could do, you know, online events are kind of becoming a little bit monotonous. Like they, they can't really truly uh, replicate the, the true conference experience. So this is something that we're sort of, exploring around and it's it's kind of an interesting platform and something that we're going to dive into a little bit deeper so so my picks all right well robin it was awesome talking to you today uh, to, to wrap us up why don't you let us you know where can people find you if they want to you know contact you online follow and you know, all the great things you're doing yeah um, i was fortunate enough to grab uh, handlers at almost any social media with my name so it's almost always at robin pokorny i'm active at uh, twitter I would say mostly. I even tried recording some um, JavaScript videos on YouTube, but yeah, it's difficult. And if you are in Berlin, I am one of the co-organizers co of uh, React Berlin. So once we get uh, meetings again, just pop up and we can talk. Awesome. Well, thanks again for everybody for joining us. Thanks, Robin, for, for coming with us today. And for everyone, uh, see you next week. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.